0: This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Daniel one through six is largely historical. Daniel seven through 12 is largely prophetical. The two prophetic dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar in chapters one through six, are interpreted by Daniel. But all four prophetical visions in chapter 7 through 12 are given to Daniel personally, and he himself, in uh, the case of uh, three of them, seeks interpretation uh, through angelic interpreters. Daniel 7, we said, was Daniel's first vision the first of four visions in these chapters, four wild beasts arising out of the stormy sea. We asked eight introductory questions about the chapter and had a good time interacting with that last week. Now we'd like to jump right into the chapter. And so we have room number one, the narration of Daniel's night vision. The narration of Daniel's night vision, 7, 1 through 14. The vision will actually be given in the first half of the chapter, and then it will be interpreted by, with with a lot of help from Gabriel in the second half of the chapter. Under the narration of Daniel's night vision, we come first of all to the four earthly kingdoms. The four earthly kingdoms, seven, one through eight. This will be contrasted with the kingdom of the Son of Man when he brings the millennium in, in verses 9 through 14. But first of all, we have the four earthly kingdoms during the times of the Gentiles. And we read about those in chapter 7, 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, 553 B.C., Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told us some of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea, the Mediterranean Sea. A stormy sea in the Bible often pictures the nations in strife and turmoil and trouble, and uh, all kinds of things are happening to stir the pot. And uh, nations are in unrest. And uh, these are conditions like, well, like after World War One, Germany was so beat up, and uh, the Frank, uh, not the Frank, the, um, what's the German currency? The Mark? Yeah, it, it went to almost nothing. And uh, the ground was fertile for Hitler to come and, uh, and uh, lead the world into World War II and try to take over the world with his Third Reich. Uh, Conditions are very uh, unstable, troubling, and it gives a lot of room for dictatorial powers to move in. And out of this stormy, uh, tumultuous sea will arise four wild beasts that represent uh, the four kingdoms of the times of the Gentiles. And four great beasts came up from the sea diverse from one another the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings i beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it this first kingdom is babylon the lion with two wings and behold another beast a second like to a bear and it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. The Medo-Persian Empire would replace the Babylonian Empire and become the most extensive empire in the history of the world up to that time. This empire is represented by a bear, but it is higher up on one side than the other. It was the Medo-Persian Empire, but the Persians under King Cyrus were the dominant or higher element. So that's what's pictured there. As we said last week, the Three Ribs probably represent early conquests in the history of the Medo-Persian Empire to help it rise to great power. The conquest of uh, Lydia in, I think it was 546 BC, the conquest of Babylon in 539 B.C., the conquest of Egypt in 525 B.C. Many interpreters believe that that's represented uh, by the three ribs between the teeth of the bear. And after this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now... The leopard is very fast. The four wings suggest great speed. And this pictures the Grecian Empire under its first king, Alexander the Great, and his uh, lightning uh, paced conquests. The four heads represent the four kingdoms that will uh, come out of Alexander's empire after his death. Uh, including when we get to chapter 11, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south that we'll read a lot more about. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. This represents the fourth empire, Rome and it had 10 horns. This represents Rome in the latter days prior to the second coming of Christ, when there will be 10 nations that will make up a revived Roman empire in the west. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. Once the 10 nations are in place, out of nowhere, there will arise another horn. Revelation 6, 1 and 2 presents him as a counterfeit Christ riding upon a white horse. Having a bow, but it doesn't mention any arrows. Perhaps that ties into Daniel 8, 25. By peace he will destroy many. He'll pretend to conquer by offering a Middle East police solution and uh, trying to win the world that way. And get people over to him is what many prophetic scholars think. But... Uh, he goes forth, it says, conquering and the conquer. He's going to rise to great power. The Ten Nation Confederacy is in place. Once it's in place, the Antichrist comes out of nowhere and has a meteoric rise to power. As Revelation says, goes forth conquering and the conquer. On his conquest, three of the leaders of the Ten Nations oppose him, three of the horns. before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. He defeats three of the nations who come against his rise to power. The others willingly give him their obedience, and now he's the head of a 10-nation revived Roman Empire in the West. In that position, he will make a seven-year political peace pact with Israel, having returned to the land but in unbelief. And that will be the seven years of the tribulation period that we read about in Daniel 9, 27, and we hope to spend a lot more time on later. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man that speaks of great brilliance and intelligence, and a mouth speaking great things. He'll utter great blasphemies against God and be very brazen in his unbelief. The Schofield Bible points out that the heraldic insignia of the Gentile nations are all beasts or birds of prey. That's interesting. And all of these beastly kingdoms point to the final beast in Revelation 13 that comes out of the sea. And uh, that beast that comes out of the sea in Revelation 13 represents both the revived Roman Empire and the leader of the revived Roman Empire called the beast. Literally in the Greek, the wild beast. Uh, the beastly kingdoms will properly eventually in their final form have somebody heading them up that they're very worthy of. A vicious wild beast he's described as. First John calls him the Antichrist. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of sin. Jesus speaks of him as that other who comes in his own name whom the Jewish nation will fatally receive. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. Another shall come in his own name, and him ye will receive. John 5.43 Now, Daniel 7 tells us that the fourth beast is unlike the three that went before. They are identified as wild animals in the animal kingdom. But the fourth beast, who's diverse from them all, you can't find an animal to use to describe him. He's like a nondescript metallic monster with uh, big iron teeth and brass claws, bronze claws. But in Revelation 13, this same beast, while he is diverse from the others, he's a composite of all of them. And so the beast is pictured as having the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion. So he's diverse, and yet there are points of comparison. For example, we speak of the Greco-Roman Empire into which Christ was born. It was the Roman Empire, but it had Greek elements in it, for example. We read in 7.4, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Dr. Coles in his prophetic outline says, a lion with wings was Babylon's national symbol. So that fits nicely. Notice 7.5. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. There are no wings on this bear. The army of the Medo Persians moved like a great lumbering and rumbling bear. They even took their families along with them. And then in 7 6, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. And the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it it will conquer so fast that when this same empire is described in Daniel 8, it'll be described as a he-goat that attacks so quickly that its feet don't even touch the ground. Alexander, the first king of the Grecian Empire, traveled faster and conquered more land than any other man in all history. And then we read about the fourth kingdom, and the one that Daniel was most interested in and he asked for a special explanation of. We read about that in verses 7 and 8. And then we have a more detailed description in verses 19 through 26. Then I would know, verse 19, the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue of his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth, that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld in the same horn, made war with the saints, and prevailed against them, This talks especially about how the Antichrist will attack God's people in the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. And he would prevail against them. Many would die. But there is a time limit. Until the Ancient of Days came. This is the second coming of Christ. And judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall arise after them. That is the Antichrist, the little horn that comes out of nowhere and takes over. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall do, subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And think to change times and laws. Now, he can't do any of this apart from God's permissive providence. And so we read, and they shall be given into his hand. But only for a limited time. Three and a half years. years until a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion and consume to consume and to destroy it unto the end. This fourth beast had great iron teeth and this identifies it with the legs of iron in Nebuchadnezzar's image in chapter two. The iron heel of Rome was on the neck of the world for one millennium. In his classic historical work, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon said, the empire of the Romans filled the world. And when the empire fell into the hands of a single person, the Roman emperor, the world became a safe, that is, They kind of enforced a sort of peace, the Pax Romana, uh, for about a 180 year period, and so there was less war during that time. It was safe, but it was a dreary prison. To resist was fatal, says Gibbon, and it was impossible to fly. And Rome uh, kept a good lock on things. Many Bible teachers including Bob Shelton in this fine book, God's Prophetic Blueprint, believes that the children's nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty, was actually a nursery rhyme that pictured all of the attempts in especially Western Europe that tried to revive the Roman Empire after it fell to the barbarians in 476 B.C. And uh, they tried to... The Holy Roman Empire, which began with Otto the Great around 961, but had its real beginnings in Charlemagne and the Carolingian Renaissance around 800. The Pope crowned Charlemagne in Rome on Christmas Day, 800. And uh, it was the idea that the Roman Empire would be revived, but this time it would have a religious direction under the papacy and they called it the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and then Napoleon tried to uh, unite uh, uh, Europe under his um, uh, banner in the early 1800s, but he failed. Mussolini tried, and, uh, and then uh, Hitler with his Third Reich, uh, and in his book Mein Kampf, My Struggle, he talked about the Third Reich uh, lasting for a thousand years. It would be another attempt to uh, revive the Roman Empire, but all these attempts failed. There'll be one great attempt in the tribulation period under Antichrist, and it will succeed up to a point and for a while. But some people believe that the children's nursery rhyme "Humpty Dumpty" is about how people have tried so hard to get the Roman Empire back together again, but it just wouldn't fit. Humpty Dumpty, sat on the wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. When an egg falls and cracks, uh, uh, it's hard to get it back together again. (laughs) My youngest son said to me some years ago, he said, Dad, why did Humpty Dumpty have a great fall? I said, I don't know, son, he said, to make up for a lousy summer. (laughs) But uh, uh, this is probably an effort to show the efforts of getting the uh, Roman Empire together. In 1993, Western Europe became a single economic market linking 345 million people in 12 nations. We know the final number will be 10 when all the dust settles. And eliminating tariffs and custom barriers The treaty is called the Maastricht Treaty uh, from a city in the Netherlands. It was signed on February 7, 1992. It became fully effective in November 1st, 1993. And so now we commonly speak of the European Union. This movement started in earnest in 1968 with the establishment of the Club of Rome. And there were grand designs for this United States of Europe going back some years now. Some very ambitious. The April 1974 edition of Moody Monthly quotes a Belgian leader named Henry Spaak, S-P-A-A-K. Now he's just not some fringe person who's whistling in the wind and giving ideas nobody holds to. He was a major leader. He had a a major role in the planning of the common market. He had served as Secretary General of NATO. He was high up in these unification efforts. And he is quoted in the 1974 April edition of Voodoo Monthly as saying something like this. We don't need another committee. We have too many already. What we need is a man of sufficient stature who can lift us out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man and be he God or devil, we will receive him. This gives you an idea of how people are thinking. Even in a early television broadcast back in 1955, famed historian Arnold Toynbee made the comment, the time for world government is now. And uh, all all this talk about globalization and all, and Europe coming together, uh, all of this is feeding into that. Back in June of 1999, uh, BBN News, shared this commenting on the us russian solution to the employment of russian peacekeeping troops in kosovo a nato spokesman remarked we have to remember that our masters are in brussels (laughs) behind the scenes the world economic forum is working hard to attack traditional christian values and set up a new world order and globalization. My wife informs me from something she saw on YouTube very recently that um, they've already, earlier this year, had a practice cyber attack. And uh, she thinks that they're building up for the kind of attack that will help them take over. (laughs) We have all this talk about globalism. I don't want to get political, but one of the most intriguing things in America is people would say, why are people, whether it comes to the border or shutting down the Alaskan pipeline or this or that, why are they making decisions that seem to be so in the non-interest of America and even against America? And that you would think, under in the America we grew up in, would it be make them politically liable and dearly cost them at the ballot box? And people were saying, could they be so stupid as to, and now they're starting to say, I'm not sure that it's stupid. They intend this, they want to kind of bring America down some. Not because they're against America, necessarily, but they want an equal playing field so they can have globalization and have a one-world government and not have one government kind of stand in the way and make that hard. And uh, I think we're starting to see some of this. We have what's called a woke culture that we desperately need to awake from. I saw an interview by the Senate of uh, our most recent Supreme Court nominee. And when she was asked whether she could define a woman, she um, punted. Daniel 7.25 says that when the Antichrist controls things, he will think to change times and laws. I think we're seeing a beginning of this now as the mystery of iniquity is increasing. uh, The restrainer is going to be removed soon when the church is raptured and all this is going to break out into the world and there'll be an atmosphere for a man to arise who's the devil's man and claim to be God and the majority of mankind will worship him and take his mark and I believe we're seeing a build up towards that right now. But ye are the salt of the earth in a foul world, and ye are the light of the world, church, in a dark world, and ye are a city set on a hill. And if men are going to get direction from anywhere, they've got to get it from God's people. And so we can pray that God would stay the flood tide and bless his church in these last days till Jesus comes but we can see where things are trending. And Jesus said that because iniquity would abound, the love of the many would wax cold. Well, then we see the everlasting kingdom from heaven in verses nine through 14, in contradistinction to these earthly kingdoms. These kingdoms have the hearts of beasts, but this kingdom is the kingdom of the Son of Man, and truly represents the best of human and divine values. In the church age, it's the church that represents that. Of whom the world is not worthy. Beloved, if God would have spared Sodom, as wicked as it was, if he could find just ten righteous people within it, What do you think is holding back the judgment of America right now? One of the most patriotic things a person can ever do for America. Now I know there are more important reasons, personally. But one of the most patriotic things a person could ever do for America is get saved. Because that's one more reason why God will hold back the tidal wave of wrath that we must never presume. We have the everlasting kingdom from heaven in verses 9 through 14. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand Thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. The revived Roman Empire is going to be decisively judged. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. Babylon, Media, Persia, and Rome, excuse me, and Greece, their dominion was ended at a point of time in history. But even though their dominion was ended, they still continued to live on because their culture and their history reflected the succeeding empires. Like we speak of Greece's influence even after Rome took over, and we talk about the Greco-Roman Empire. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed." Revelation 4 and 5 is the New Testament version of this vision, where the Lamb receives the seven-sealed scroll from the right hand of him that sits on the throne, and he's going to bring judgments to bear upon the tribulation earth that will be starting soon, and those judgments will eventually deliver the world from evil and put it into the hands of Messiah when he comes back to reign in his kingdom. Will the coming kingdom of Christ endure for a thousand years or forever and ever? Will the kingdom of Christ endure for a thousand years? His saints will be raised from the dead and rule and reign with him a thousand years, Revelation 24 through 6. So will the kingdom last for a thousand years or forever and ever? Okay, both. The everlasting kingdom of Christ is in two stages. There's the 1,000-year millennial stage where while things are much better, there's still sin on earth. And Jesus shows what a wonderful job he can do ruling a world that's still not perfect. And then after a great transition that includes the great white throne judgment and the burning up of the universe... That everlasting kingdom will go into its final stage, the new heavens and earth, where there'll be no more sin or curse. And then forever and ever, Jesus will show what a wonderful job he can do, ruling under perfect conditions, and eternally bringing out all the wonderful potential in his redeemed. Unto the ages of the ages, he will show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7. Revelation 11.15 lets us know that when he comes back to rule, it will be everlasting, Though there will be an initial thousand-year kingdom age phase. We read that the seventh angel sounds, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, in verse 11, it says his body would be given to the burning flame. In Revelation nineteen twenty, at Armageddon, the Antichrist and the false prophet are unceremoniously removed from the battlefield and cast alive into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. They will not physically die. Like Kor and his company, they will descend into judgment alive, without physical death as we normally think of it. They will be cast alive into the lake of fire, the final form of hell, Gehenna hell. They are the first inhabitants of the lake of fire, the first two occupants. The third will be Satan, as we read in Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's interesting. The devil is cast into the lake of fire after the thousand years. In Revelation 20, verse 10 his two lieutenants the antichrist and the false prophet were cast into the lake of fire in revelation 19:20 before the thousand years a thousand years have passed and the beast and the false prophet are still there conscious eternal punishment not annihilation and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever in the greek language it's third person plural they the beast and the antichrist who were cast in before the thousand years, and the great dragon who was just cast in, they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Day and night means no rest, continual, and forever and ever means no end. Now there were two men in the Old Testament who were taken to heaven without ever dying, and they were Enoch and Elijah. In Genesis 5, as we read through the chapter, we feel like we're walking through a cemetery. And he died, and he died, and he died. But in the midst of that, a ray of hope is introduced. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. But this ray of hope in Genesis 5 is someday going to so grow, and spread that it will fill the sky with radiant splendor. As we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I love that old German proverb that says, Christians never say goodbye for the last time. Well, the Son of Man is brought before the Ancient of Days. Remember, Jesus referred to this passage before the Sanhedrin when he was on trial. They said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And he said, thou sayest that I am. And hereafter ye shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. He's referring to this very passage as he's about to come back, destroy Gentile world power and set up his kingdom. The ancient of days has not aged a day who can count his everlasting years? Go back as far into eternity past as you can, God is there. Go forward into eternity future as far as you can, God is there. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Nobody made God. God has always existed, God always will exist, and He must exist. In the finite world, there's always a cause and effect relationship, and anything that's finite has a cause. But God is the uncaused final cause of all things, and He does not have anything that made Him or brought Him into being. He exists because He must exist. Not only does God exist, but when you think about God, you cannot imagine that he doesn't exist. His existence is an attribute of his essence. He's the living God. You cannot meaningly think in terms of God and think of him as not existing. All being outside of God is created and dependent. God's existence is absolute. And God describes that as i am that i am that name occurring in the old testament usually in our king james translated lord with all caps 6823 times he exists because he must exist and he eternally exists he's the ancient of days he has not aged a day he's ever there for us with all of his power and love Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Whoever liveth to make intercession for us, who is our anchor of hope, both sure and steadfast, and that which entereth into the veil. When Christ comes back, he will smash the enemy nations with a rod of iron and uh, inherit all the kingdoms of the world. A good parallel passage is Psalm 2, 6 through 9. Earlier in the Psalm, we're told that all the world's in revolt against Messiah and wants to cast off all restraint from God and Messiah. But for all of this activity, God's not impressed because he's God. He that sitteth in the heavens shall Laugh them to scorn. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. All of man's opposition to the contrary, notwithstanding, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then the Messiah speaks and says, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and uh, thou shalt shatter them like a potter's vessel. We read in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, that when he takes over and rules the world, since there'll still be sin, he must enforce righteousness against rebels with that rod of iron, that authoritative word that comes out of his mouth in judgment and in Righteousness. And so we read that there shall come a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Messiah will come from humble origins from David's family line. But the fullness of the sevenfold spirit shall rest upon him, as he did at the Jordan River at the baptism. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. The Hebrew says quick-scented like a hound sniffs out the prey and has a second sense. Messiah will instinctively know how to administer judgment. It'll be part of him. He will not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. He won't judge according to appearance, but deep down, perfect. He will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. When Jesus came the first time, there was no room in the inn, but when he comes the second time, the father says, you will possess all the heathen, and they shall be your habitation. How wondrous that he who owns the cattle on a thousand hills came to the earth and dwelt in the cattle stall. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that ye through his poverty might be rich. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And as Pastor Asher was reminding us earlier, you and I need to speak a lot more than we do about the unspeakable gift. Then we have the interpretation of Daniel's night vision. Can you name the first good angel who's named in scripture? Can you name the first good angel who's named in Scripture? Gabriel. Gabriel. We'll see it right here in our passage. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And then we will skip down to um, verses 27 and 28 because we had read the other verses earlier. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom unto the whole heaven shall be given unto the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Excuse me one second, I'm just checking on something. I'm sorry, I think I confused chapter seven with chapter eight. It's uh, chapter eight that Gabriel explains that vision, and uh, uh, an angel calls to him and says, Gabriel, could Gabriel make this man to understand the vision? Sorry, I got got a little bit confused there, I'm sorry. But Gabriel is the first angel named in scripture, but it's in chapter eight, not chapter seven. I'm sorry about that, I just kind of caught my mistake there. 7.25 says that he will wear out the saints of the Most High. J. Vernon McGee says, that doesn't mean like some of us preachers wear out the saints on Sunday morning. (laughs) Not talking about that. The word wear out has the idea of persecute. Uh, I heard about this pastor and this little boy who were standing in the foyer of the church, and they were looking up at these impressive wooden plaques. And the uh, little boy said to his pastor, he said, who are they? And the pastor said, they are members of our church who died in service. And the little boy said, was that the morning service and evening service? <laughs> I had a professor at Bob Jones, Professor Boyd, who believed that the ordinance in Isaiah 24, 5 was capital punishment. I've thought about that for 50 years now. The earth also was defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. He's probably referring to the covenant that God made with Noah and all the earth in Genesis nine after the flood, which was leading into the dispensation of government. And capital punishment was to help enforce government authority in uh, hopefully maintaining good and punishing evil. And Reverend Boyd thought that one of the reasons there would be so much crime in the end times is because people would get away from a proper use of capital punishment. He thinks that that's the ordinance that's spoken of there and goes back to that part of the Noahic Covenant in Isaiah 9-6 where God says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. The greatest pollution in all the world is not the pollution of water and air and soil. It's heart pollution. The earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. God says he'll send the flood, Genesis 6.13, because man has filled the earth with violence and he will destroy them with the earth he destroys. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet in Revelation 11, God says in Revelation 11:18, 18, and I will destroy them that destroy the earth. It's people sinning against, I believe in proper use of the environment, don't get me wrong, but the worst pollution is heart pollution. And uh, the worst thing that we can do to hurt our world is the sin against God. I never thought I would live to see in America a defund the police movement, with crime rising. thats madness. (laughs) I think of the French Revolution, where they changed the seven day week into a 10 day week, trying to get rid of the idea of God and creation. I believe when the Antichrist changes times and laws, I believe he's gonna to try to get rid of BC and AD so we no longer divide history around the birth of Christ. I believe that we're seeing a lot of efforts to change fundamental laws right now, and we're playing right into the hands of the Antichrist. A preacher named Jack Hibbs, my wife saw him on YouTube, said that at the Grammys just recently They had somebody come out in a devil's costume and they had ladies, I guess, in certain dresses dancing all around them and they were promoting a direct worship of Satan. Pastor Pearson sent out an appeal to the pastors in this area recently about the Satanic Temple's Satan Club, trying to get Bible clubs out of our Chesapeake schools. Jimmy Evans in Tipping Point Uh, on a program on January 11th, 2023, pointed out, my wife shared this with me, the House voted on a bill that would require medical care for babies born after an abortion attempt if they survived. 210 Democrats voted against it, all but two to give medical attempt to a baby who survived and was living after a botched abortion attempt. Republicans voted it in as far as the House was concerned, but of course it went past the Senate, and if it did, it would get a presidential veto. But imagine changing laws concerning life and birth. Jimmy Evans also pointed out that California passed the law a few months ago, that any child that can get to California that wants a sex change, the state of California will take emergency custody of that child, protect them from their parents and any legal consequences from their state. And they will see them through the process of transitioning. They are doing it to counteract all of the quote-unquote prejudice against the trans movement and all the trans stuff. James Kadis and Tom Hughes in a broadcast in January of 2023 said in Canada, they are telling homeless people, why don't you consider suicide as a viable option to rescue the medical system? They have an ad on TV about the death transition, making it seemingly wonderful. Scenes where families are gathered, a calm sea where lots of people are walking into it. Again, in January of this year, Mike Huckabee pointed out that a Christian preschool that meets in a church in San Diego, California made a law. Every preschool has to be licensed, and children must not be compelled to listen to Christian music or Bible stories. The Antichrist is going to take this even further and think to change times and laws. I think of that cry in Isaiah 5:20 20 and 21. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Daniel describes God in Daniel 2.21 as the God who changes times and seasons. But the Antichrist is gonna to try to substitute himself for God. In fact, in Revelation thirteen three and four, we are told that all the world will wonder after the beast whose deadly wound was killed, and they'll worship the dragon, and they'll worship the Antichrist, the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who shall be able to make war with him? Well, they'll find out at the second coming of Christ. Revelation 17, 14 says, And these, the ten kings of the revived Roman Empire under Antichrist, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. But these worshipers will say, who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? And this is drawing from the song of Moses in Exodus 15, 11, when God's worshiped by the victorious Israelites on the victory side of the Red Sea when the Egyptians were drowned. And they say, um, uh, you know, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, who is like thee? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. He's going to apply that to himself because that same uh, passage says the Lord's a man of war. And they're going to say, who's like the beast who's able to make war with him? But they will find out soon enough. Second Thessalonians 2.4 is a very bold verse. It says that the Antichrist opposeth and exalteth himself against all that is called God or worshipped so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. (laughs) And he will, according to Revelation 13, demand that people take a mark of the beast and worship him and give him exclusive devotion or else. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, according to Revelation 14, 9 through 11, an angel flies all around the earth in the heaven, and gives everyone fair warning about the mark of the beast. If anyone takes that mark, his portion will be in the lake that burneth with of fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. As Dr. Robert Donsweiler said, taking the mark of the beast is the unpardonable sin of the tribulation period. If a person takes that mark, he has in effect sold his soul to the devil, and he places himself beyond the pale of redemption before death in this life. But when it comes to the showdown at Armageddon, there should be no question who's going to win. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, we have the rise and the demise of the Antichrist in a single breath as Christ slays him with the breath of his lips. Then shall that wicked appear whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered up at the roots and died. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and instantly the winds hushed and the waves fell still. Once he spoke a word to a legion of demons bursting out at the seams of a poor man's soul. And they fled, and here too there was a great calm. Now at Armageddon, with that sharp sword that proceedeth out of his mouth, he but speaks the word, and as it were, the war is over. But before he moves in for the attack, all the fierce fowl of heaven are invited to Armageddon in northwestern Israel to an event that the Bible calls the Supper of the Great God. The birds are the honored guests and the main course is the armies of Antichrist. The armies of Antichrist are doomed. The fierce fowl know it. And they have come to bury the dead in the name of the living God. Daniel 7 is such an important and pivotal chapter. I'll say a little bit more about it, Lord willing, next week, and then we'll move into chapter 8. Thank you for listening.